I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true. And it is all that I need. That's right. All right, now, um, we're going to start right away with 1 Samuel chapter 1, but I'm even going to take you a little before then because, see, I want you to know that, that this period of time, this period of time at the time of Samuel, and the, it was a dire time, and it was the time of the judges. And during, during the time of the judges, it was dark. Israel was, for the most part, disobedient, worshiping other gods. There's there really only a couple bright spots in the judges' time. And uh, in, believe it or not, how did it get so bad? I mean, you know, Moses, Joshua, and, and in, Josh, in, in Judges, right in the first two chapters, it says that after Joshua died. I mean, they had two strong, God-fearing leaders, and the people followed them, and, and all was going well. And it says that after Joshua died, the very next generation, I mean, remember, not two, three, it's the very next generation that didn't even know about Moses and the Red Sea, didn't even know how God delivered the Israelites from Egypt. They didn't even know it. Now, why doesn't the next generation know? Whose fault is it? Of course. And this is something we have to keep in mind. We can't expect our next generation to, to do what we know is right and, and know their Savior and um, stay blameless and, and how you stay hot as a young man or young woman or old woman or old man. Stay pure. We saw that last week. It's because not only do they listen and hear God's word, they live it. They live it. And how are, how are they going to know? I mean, I'm ashamed to think that there was things that I didn't even know studying this. And if I don't know, how can I teach my kids? So we have a responsibility. And here, I mean, and we see the, the consequences of, of their not telling. And, and it also says in there that they just did what they wanted. So you can imagine the chaos that was going on. Everybody did whatever they wanted. So it was a dire time. And so many of the judges didn't do a whole lot of good. Now, we know that Deborah was good. She had, a, she, um, had Israel um, um, in a good place for a number of years. That was good. There was a few of them. I mean, even with Samson, he was, he was born um, in a miraculous way, and he was set apart to do a, a work for God. And even Samson, it was all about Samson instead of being all about God. But there was another, there was another um, bright spot, even in dark times. And we know, we've learned that, remember last week in Psalm 119, the, the writer of the Psalm said, it was good that I was afflicted. I know that's a hard verse to hear, but it says, it was good that I was afflicted because it brought me back to God's word. You know, and how we, ha we learned that God's um word good. Sometimes when we say God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. It's because that even when it doesn't look good in our definition of good, God is up to something for our good. And so sometimes even in the, in the dark times, we still see God didn't throw in the towel. He still had a people. He had a remnant that was hanging and clinging. And one of the things that he did during the time of the dark 
judges is that he, there was a little town called Bethlehem. I'm sure you've heard of it. And this little town of Bethlehem, he thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to impact this town. I'm going to show them that I'm still in charge because they either have gotten spiritually cocky or they have rejected me and worshiping other gods and they are not clinging to me, so I'll get their attention. And so a famine went in that land. And I know people don't like to think that God turns wall, rivers into deserts. But I, I think I proved it to you with Psalm 107. He does what he has to do, not because he's mean. It's because he does love us so much. And so he sent a famine to Bethlehem to wake him up. And again, there's only two choices. You can either try to figure things out on your own, or you can trust that the Lord is teaching you, and you learn from it, and you watch him provide for you, even in dark times. I think we get this we get that that um, contrast when we see just the little book that's before first Samuel and that's the story of Ruth you have Naomi's husband oh it's famine well I better do something I better do something never once do you see Naomi's husband go to the Lord about this but how quick don't we oh this is happening I better do something and we never stop and think let's ask for direction because what does the Bible say if you trust him with all your heart he will direct he's your best leader down a path of undecisiveness what do I do he'll lead your path it says it's a promise but you got to trust him with all your heart so anyway, down, down uh, the road they went to Moab. He probably said to Naomi, pack, pack up. Um, you know, we're going to Moab. They have, they've got food there. I'm going to take care of my family. You can just hear him. Sounds good, doesn't it? But he never inquired of the Lord. Now, what happens when you go to a pagan town? Before you know it, and you start getting roots, and pretty soon you are in, involved in their environment, and you know their their behavior starts to be your behavior. And Naomi's husband dies. The two boys marry peg, pagan Moabite women, and they die. Now, I do believe that Naomi was a good mother-in-law because otherwise we wouldn't have this story. And for the Lord to be able to work this. Someone asked me last night, they said, well, you know, I, I, this, this was all part of God's plan. We're going to talk about God's permissive will and God's perfect will. This is such a lesson today on God's permissive will versus God's perfect will. And we should want nothing but God's perfect will. Even when we don't like it or when we don't understand it, we should want nothing. When we're praying and asking, we should always pray for God's perfect will. But there's times when, he, when we want our way and we think our way is best and where there's no give to it. And I think here is an example. We're going to see it when they bring in a king and all this later. But God has a permissive will. Sometimes he'll say, you think you're so smart? Okay, I'll go for it and hang yourself because you're going to find it will lead to destruction every time. Your path will always lead to destruction so, okay, God said, all right, um, okay, Naomi's husband, if you think you're so smart and you think you can take care of everything and I'm not enough, then go to Moab. Well, I'll tell you, he, he 
got there, he got Naomi's attention. And now there she is. She's, she's destitute because I'll tell you, widows were not cared for like they are today. There's no Medicare. There's, there's nothing like that. And so she is destitute. And she tells her two girls, you know, she's kind of bitter. She's blaming God. She's just in a bad state. Emotions, her grief overpowered her faith. Any emotion is dangerous when it overpowers your faith and trust in God. And grief overtook her, and before you know it, she's telling her daughter-in-laws, just go back to your people. I'm going back to Bethlehem. I, I'm bitter, and I'm blaming God. I'm telling she, you talk about a snit. She was in a major snit, and it was because she wasn't willing to see that God was up to something. And so, you know, she had have done a number on these girls. I mean, one did leave and go back, but Ruth, I mean, she, was, she left all what was comfortable and familiar, and she said, I want your people to be my people, and I want your God to be my God. And off they go to Bethlehem, and as coincidence would be, oh, man, I hope that just made you choke when I said that word, because it, coincidence, nothing, of all the harvest fields that, that Ruth could have picked. Because, again, they have nothing. Naomi says, well, you better, we're going to starve to death if you don't go and collect, you know, because that's what poor people do. They go and they just follow the gleaners and pick up some leftovers. You can tell Ruth's heart. You can see God working in her, and she's willing to do that. But there again, she lands in Boaz's field. And, and I'm thinking to myself here, see, that Boaz's family for all the years, they stayed in Bethlehem. See, there's the difference. They stayed put, trusting that if, if they stay, if they walk blameless with the Lord, he will provide because what's the promise, even though we know it's New Testament now, but the principle is the same. What does God promise his children? I'll supply all that you need. And they trusted him. So Boaz comes from a great family. But speaking of his family, by the way, who is his mama? Do you remember who his mama was? Was Rahab, the prostitute. I mean, what a story that is. Boaz is who he is is because one day his mom sat him down and said, boy, let me tell you about God's grace. Let me tell you what I once was. Boaz learned through Rahab's little mustard seed of faith. And because of God's faithfulness and grace, he grafted her into the family of Israel. That's what God does. He grafts us into his family. And she told her son about God's forgiveness and, and all this parental teaching caused Boaz to think twice when he's saying, who is that? He probably was thinking, who's that beauty? Because I think she was beautiful, but I think her heart just came out of her face and it just, whatever she looked like, it was beautiful because she had such a good heart. Well, that's, that's the, the daughter-in-law of Naomi, and she's a Moabite. And instead of saying, whoa, he looks at her and says, huh, if God can do that to my mom, <laughs> he sure can do it to her. And, and there was never any animosity like, oh, she's begging. Nothing like that. What does he say? Drop a little. Make sure she has enough. Introduces himself to her. 
I mean, the whole story is great, but you know, but there was a bright spot, but you can see why it was bright because they were willing to do it God's way. Even when they didn't understand, even, even though the times were dark, I'm telling you, I don't know what we're heading for in this country and in our world. We have no idea, but what we do know is that we have a God who loves his children. I mean, we can wake up every morning, even hear the horror stories. We're living in dark times, but that's why this is so relevant and why it's worth taking the time this morning. Because the principles are still the same. And you're going to watch what happens when you disobey because you think you either know better or whatever reason that you decide you don't need the Lord. You think it's in someone else or something else, and all of a sudden you, you've made another God. And It's so easy to make gods out of people and out of things. We think we can't live without them. Especially when, when you lose someone that you love so much, you think, oh, I don't know if, oh, yes, you're going to find that he is enough. So, all right, now um, we have seen Samson and now uh, the judge that comes into play after Samson is, is um, Eli. And we know that to get to Samuel here, you got to read the story of, of Hannah. And, you know, First Samuel 1, what a story that is. But where did you know that there was going to be trouble before you even read the story? And I know most of us have known it from Sunday school, but where did you know that there was going to be trouble? Right away in verse 2, would you say? 1 Samuel 1, verse 2, we're going to have trouble. And he had two wives. That'll do it. That's exactly, that'll do it. And, you know, even though it was acceptable culture, I mean, that's what everybody was doing. That's not the problem. I mean, culture-wise, they weren't doing anything wrong. But in God's eyes, it was wrong. And there's going to be trouble. So, and there was. I mean, and, and I think, you know, the, the Lord had a say in this. He, and it's in the story for us to learn. And, and he, is going to, he is going to work something really wonderful through this mess, believe it or not. And you've got two women. Each one has what the other one wants. And so you know there's going to be trouble. You've got one who's got all the kids, and you've got the one who the husband likes better. Oh, you think that's not problems when you know you're a favorite? Now, even though, you know, Hannah's husband says, I mean, aren't I worth more to you than uh, many children? I mean, you know, <laughs> got to laugh a little bit, you know. But anyways... There's trouble because, you know, the other one, what, what don't you do sometimes? You kind of try to do everything you can to put someone else down so you don't, you don't feel so bad. I mean, the one who doesn't have the love of her husband, and she's got all the kids and everything, that's all well and good. But when you watch your husband bring you the, the food that's, you know, he's, he's the supplier, and he brings you enough food for you and the, and the kids. Yeah. But then you see him bring double portion to that other woman. I mean, this isn't right, this isn't fair, and there's trouble. But you're going to see these two wives, both of them have a different kind of heart. And that's why there's only two. You're, you either try to fix it your human way, or you try to do it God's way. And here in this one story, this why this principle is all the way through these chapters. 
So you've got one wife that's trying to do it her way, and she is starting, and she, year after year, she is just bullying this woman, and she is just irritating her, and it says year after year, verse 7, this went on year after year. Hannah had been praying about it, said this went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and couldn't eat. I mean, she just, she didn't let it go. You talk about just keeping, putting that knife in and twisting it. It's not that Hannah never prayed about it, but finally she just had had it. And I don't know if you've been there, but if you have, you know, all of a sudden, it just This is it. And she goes to the house of the Lord. This time, she is completely different. She is ready to hand it over. In fact, you can see as she is is praying, as she admits in verse 10, she's, she's in bitterness of soul. Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord, and she made a vow saying, and I know this looks like, I'll do for you if you do for me. I mean, you're, you know, it's kind of like a manipulation, a barter, you know. But I think that that's not the case here. Look at, oh, Lord Almighty, if you will. There's your key words. I know she wants this child bad, and she wants the Lord to know that I will give this child back to you. I just want you to know if it would be your will. That's why this is not a barter. She just wants him to know that if it could possibly be his will. Doesn't that remind you of that blind man that came to Jesus and said, if you're willing? I mean, they know that he can. He's Almighty God. She addressed him, oh, Lord Almighty. So it's not a question of can she or can he, but she knows that he can. But if you will... I just want you to know that I will give him back to you. She kept on praying, verse 12, to the Lord Eli observed her mouth. Now, I never until this study did, I I always kind of thought Eli was, well, I didn't really think about it. I just kind of thought he was an okay guy, you know, doing his job. But now I don't think he's a good guy at all. And it came to me, and I'll I'll give you proof. I mean, and you can disagree with me if you want. But all of a sudden, I'm starting to see he's he's similar to most of the judges. It's all about Eli. Oh, he might have some canned words to say. But look, look at his heart. You got a woman who is praying, and her lips are moving, but her voice could not be heard, verse 13. What's his first thought? Instead of going up to her and seeing, honey, what's the trouble? Can I help you in any way? The very first thing he says, man, you drunk woman? You shouldn't, you shouldn't, you better give it, you better get rid of your wine. All of a sudden it clicked to me. I thought, what a first thing to say. You got someone who's praying, and the first thing you care about. Is that she has had too much to drink? And she comes back and says, not so, my Lord. I'm a woman who's deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. Wicked woman, I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. 
Now, yes, Eli says, go in peace, and may the Lord, the God of Israel, grant you what you, what, what you have asked of him. I think, I think that was on a cue card. I think that that probably was right there, like, oh, I better say something to this woman. I better say something godly to him. I mean, it's not even personal. Isn't this something you could say to just about anybody, about anything? Oh, may the God, may, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant you what you want. Nasty him. I'm sorry. You know, maybe, maybe I got an attitude about this, but I just, I don't appreciate the way he handled her. Not as a, as a man of God. He didn't even care. So we know that Hannah does have a child, and his name is Samuel, and and she does do what she promised the Lord. But I appreciated what she said in verse 7, in 27 of chapter 1. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him, so now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he will be given over to the Lord. There wasn't anything about Eli in this. She didn't, she didn't say, oh, thanks a lot for your wonderful prayer. Because he didn't give one to her. He didn't even say, can I pray with you about this? He just took out his cue card and said, but oh, it better be God later. And the reason, I think there's more proof of that, because in verse 12 of chapter 2, Eli's sons were wicked men, and they had no regard for the Lord. They had absolutely no regard for the Lord. Now, you've got to remember this phrase, compared to Samuel's sons, who, you know, were not, were, who, you know, made wrong choices too. But we're going to see a difference. Now, this one is so serious. They had no regard for the Lord at all. Why? Because Eli never told them. Eli didn't live out an example. Why? Because, you know, the three of them, the three of them, they, now, if I didn't quite understand all this before, but all three of them, I think, had a food problem. <laughs> they had a food problem. I think they loved to eat. I think they didn't eat to live. They, they lived to eat. I think they had a food problem. And even though you might pass this off as not such a serious sin, they were doing it thinking no one knew, but God said, sin is sin, and you're not getting away with it. Now, there's a bad environment going on here, and don't think Hannah doesn't know that. What do you think it was like for Hannah to drop her precious little honey off in this kind of environment? I'd have been a little nervous, too. But I love the verse in, in verse 18 of chapter 2. Each year, his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Oh, I know he was growing. I know he would grow out of clothes every year, and she was going to bring a robe. But this was her way to get in there and see how he was doing. Now, verse 27. Now, a man of God came to Eli. So, again, there's a man of God who came and, and said, this is what the Lord told me to tell you. And the reason why is that you have been, 
You've been eating from the sacrifices that you've made. Now that is permissible, but there's a protocol and there's portions of the sacrifice that you can and cannot eat. And I think they just went in and just ate the whole thing practically. And the reason I say that is because this man of God in verse 30 says, oh, oh no, in verse 29 says, why do you honor your sons more than me? This is God's word. This man is speaking him, but said, so this is what God told me to tell you. This is God speaking. Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people, Israel? You know, it's, they're probably doing that in secret, and who's going to know? But, therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, this is what he said to you, Eli, you know he said that. I promised your house and your father's house would minister before me forever. When you're welcome blameless before me, you watch my blessings. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength, the strength of your father's house, so that there will be so that there will not be an old man in your family line, and you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done in Israel, thank you. Goodness for that remnant in God's grace. In your family line, there will never be an old man. End of 33, and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. And he goes on and says, and what happens to your two sons will be assigned to you. They'll both die on the same day. So do you think God takes sin seriously? <laughs> And then, but he says, then he says, okay, it's not going to be you, Eli, and it's, it's going to be all over for your family. None of them are going to let go in, last into old age, but I will raise up, verse 35, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. Now catch this, who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I'm going to raise up a priest, his name is Samuel, and he has a heart for me. And doing what's right is going to be his main focus. He's going to know what he's going to seek me. And if you seek me, you will find me. And I'm going to raise up someone who's going to do that because you didn't. And then we see as Samuel grows, and then we know the chapter 3 story so well. And, and so the Lord, you know, comes to Samuel. And, and finally, I mean, this is where I... Give Eli one little point. <laughs> and I think, you know, I'm in such a state with Eli right now that I just think he said, oh, listen to the Lord. Let me sleep. I, I, I don't know. But he finally said, you know, I'm not the one talking, so it must be the Lord. I mean, at least he knew enough to know that, that there was another voice. And so he said to Samuel, listen, listen to the Lord's voice. So that, you know, that he did do. And look at verse 11. And the Lord said to Samuel, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. 
Isn't that something? Eli and his boys, they knew what they were doing. They knew it was wrong. They just were trying to get away with it. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible, and he failed to restrain them. I mean, every kid's going to try. You know, and as, as a parent, our responsibility is, I always say, you don't have to teach a kid how to be bad. I mean, that's just in, I mean, in being self-centered and all that. You don't have to teach a child that. That's ingrained in them. You have to teach them God's way. And Eli failed, it said, to tell when, the, when his kids were, were being naughty or when they were growing up and being contemptible is the word. He just said, you know, I'm sure he just said, well, you know, it's a phase. They'll grow out of it. Um, you know, uh, isn't that funny? Look at them. Or whatever. It's just that it is serious, making sure the next generation knows. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Verse 19, the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of his words fall to the ground. In other words, when God spoke, Samuel listened. How often don't, when God is speaking to us, the word just drop to the ground, because I don't want to hear it. And Samuel, he desired to hear God and live it, and let the word sink in and grow from it. So Israel is still in a very rebellious stage. And uh, they're worshiping other gods. And, and there was something called the Ark of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, there's many, but it was an it was a ark that was built specifically um, as a symbolic of God's presence. And believe me, dimensions and, and rules, all of that was taken very seriously. Now, this was captured when the Philistines came and destroyed or annihilated Israel. Look at verse 10. Because remember, the Philistines were Israel's main enemy, and the Lord used them sometimes to really say, you are in such a bad state i got to wake you up. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Verse 10, chapter 4. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons died. Huh, where'd you hear that before? Yeah. Okay, so they had someone, a Benjamite, Leave the battle line and say, uh, you've been the one that has to tell Eli the news. So he comes running out of the battle line. Verse 13, when the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town set, sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, what's the meaning of this uproar? And the man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old, and whose eyes were set so that he could not see. Yes, he's old. 
But there's not going to be any old men from then on in that family. You know that. So he said, I've just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli said, what? Asked, what happened, my son? He said, well, here's the news. Both your sons are dead. And, verse 17, the ark of God has been captured. Boo. Look at verse 18. I don't think that it crushed Eli as much that his boys were killed was that this presence of God, all of a sudden he thought, oh, this is bad. All of a sudden I think things raced in front of him. Oh, I, I have not done things right. And I think he started feeling the horror of the ark of God is now in Philistine's hands. It said when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broke and he died for he was old and heavy. <laughs> now... Yeah, that's why I think that he had a food problem, and they're eating way too much of the sacrifice. I think this all fits. It's going to come back to haunt you in so many different ways when you don't do it God's way. Okay, chapter 5, this ark of God goes into five different towns in Philistine territory because, I mean, you know, God is still, there's, there's that, the beautiful power of God still going through this, and he's going to show himself, and here goes the ark of God, and it, it lands in the first town in Philistine territory, and what does the Lord do? Well, he sees to it that everybody, that, you know, many there develop tumors and disease and sickness and it doesn't take much for this town to figure, uh, let's move this thing on. And so it moves to another town. And this happens every town for five times. So in chapter 6, they decide, okay, we have got to get this thing out of here. Let's send it back. They call it the Ark of the Lord. Now, I noticed that, yes, they use Israel's God, little G, but they do call it the Ark of the Lord. And I'm thinking to myself, is this more proof that there's no such thing as an atheist? They can claim it, but I think down deep they know. I'm wondering if the Philistines, down deep, they knew that there was a powerful almighty God at work here. They didn't want to give in to it, but... But anyway, they, they do say, verse 4, what guilt offering should we send to him? I mean, we're going to send this thing back, so we should have a little, you know, uh, gift that will maybe be so wonderful that they won't hold this against us. And they thought this was a good idea. It about grossed me out. They replied, five gold tumors and five gold rats. I don't care if it's made out of gold or not. They molded these, this gold to look like the tumors that people were getting, and they, they made a, five rats out of gold, symbolizing the five rulers that were in charge of every one of those five towns. Boy, you wonder what was going through their head. Oh, well, see, but see, once you're on the wrong path, I think you you just you're not thinking straight at all, Linda. The ark held the Ten Commandments. You bet. That was a very good point. Thanks, Linda. 
So anyway, they made these five gold tumors and five golden rats, and and then for seven, they say, okay, here's the cart. This is what this way we, you got to do. You got to make a new cart, and then you have to have two cows that have calved, but they haven't worked. So they got a lot of strength. They're not beat up. Two cows that have calved will pin their babies in a pen, but these, these cows will take the ark of the Lord and also the chest beside it with the gold objects you're sending back as a guilt offering. They say, okay, send it on its way and don't have anybody drive it or anything because here, this is, this is the way we're going to lay it out. If these two cows, you, you keep watching and see where they go because you see where they take this wagon and if they take it into Israel territory, which is Beth Shemesh, I looked it up to make sure that is, of course, Israel territory, but I wasn't acquainted with that town, so I wanted to make sure. If, they, if these two cows lead that ark of the Lord to Beth Shemesh, boy, we are in big trouble. The Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if these two cows just go in any other direction, then we know that this whole thing, that it was not his hand that struck us and that it happened to us by chance. Then this whole thing is just a fluke. <laughs> they watched all right. And where did those two cows go? Straight to Israel territory. Because it didn't have a physical driver. But boy, the Lord guided that, that ark of God right to Israel territory. Of course, they're thrilled. It goes from Beth Shanesh, and then in chapter 7, they bring it to another Israel town called Carithiath Jerem. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but they chose to put it in another Israel town, and it was there, verse 2, chapter 7, for 20 years. And during that time, the Israelites started waking up, and all the people of Israel mourned and sought the Lord. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, if... So he's putting it in there. It's your choice. But I'm telling you, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart. I mean, again, very relatable. There's a lot of church people. There's a lot of even Christians who say, well, you know, I got my ticket to heaven. I've been at the cross. Thank you very much. But now let me live my life the way I want it. And they don't want to change to be like Jesus. And that's why I said, what is your reason for being here? Do you really have a desire to want his character? Because you're starting to see that your wrong world is leading to destruction and you have nothing. The right road, well, no matter what life deals you, you've, you've got an out. You've got hope. Hope isn't something. It's someone So Samuel says, okay, it's your call. But if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart and you mean business, and this is serious, you're not playing games, 
Then rid yourselves of all the foreign gods. See, you've, this is, take this seriously. You've got you've to have proof in your life that you want no, you have no other gods. He is going to be your priority. He's going to have the priority in your 24-hour span. You know how badly you need to stay clinging to him, to stay pure before him. You've got to listen and learn and live it out. And if you do that, he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their bales and asterisks and served the Lord only. Now, and, and, and toward the end of chapter 7, uh, while Samuel, verse 10, Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near. So here comes the enemy. But now as they are walking with the Lord, you're going to see this what the Lord promises. On that day, the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they routed before the Israelites. They were routed before the Israelites. I mean, there they were. The enemy was right before them, and they slaughtered them. Israel slaughtered the Philistines. Of course, Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and he named the stone Ebenezer, saying, thus far has the Lord helped us. Every time you look at this stone, Israel, make sure you remember it is not by your might. It is not by your power. It is by God's. Now, Samuel, throughout his lifetime, the hand of the Lord was, was against the Philistines because Samuel made sure that the Israelites were walking blameless before him. And Samuel, verse 15, continued as judge over Israel all the days of his life. Chapter 8, he's getting old. And when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. See, that was the thing to do. That was the natural thing. That's why Eli, if he had done right, this would have just continued on. But now um, Samuel is going to pass it on to the, onto the judgeship, onto his sons. Verse 3, but his sons did not walk in his ways. Now here's the difference between Eli and Samuel. It said Eli's boys, they didn't have any regards for the Lord at all. Samuel's, they chose not to walk and, li- and look at the example that they had with their father. It's not that Samuel had been a bad father. I think you, many of you know, as I have learned, is that when children come to the age of accountability, um, they make their own choices. And you, we have a tendency to say, what did I do wrong? When our children go wayward, we have a tendency to say, what did I do wrong? And if we know that we have raised them to love the Lord... If our Bibles were open and and we trained our kids the best we can, we can know that even though they grow up, they make their own choices. The sad thing about it is we also know then they'll reap the consequences. But I think here it says, but his sons did not walk in his ways. They didn't look at they did. They turned aside. They turned aside and said, No, I don't, I don't want what you've got. I mean, I had a boy that said the same thing, so that's why I get this. 
They turned aside. He turned aside. See, that means that I don't want what you have. I kind of like what the world's offering me. It makes me feel good because you know what? Um, it, it says they turned aside and, after, and they went after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. It was all about them. I want to be somebody and I don't care who I got to hurt to get there. These boys made their choice to pull into the ways of the world instead of following the example of their dad. So I think there's a difference there. Now, again, a little sideline. If you are in that position, if you've got a child, that you just don't give up, okay? You just don't give up, and you don't ever shut a door. You don't shut the door. You have to allow the Lord to change their heart because that's the only one that can change a heart. But you don't think that you're off, off for the responsibility. You still have a responsibility. The Lord's going to change their heart if they let him. But your responsibility, my responsibility, even though they were walking in a dark place and they were ignoring the ways that you taught them, You still have to be salt and light. <laughs> because in Matthew last year, we were told, you are salt and you are light. Are you still, our responsibility is still to make Jesus taste good. And that doesn't mean preaching to him, you know, clubbing them over their head with your biggest Bible, you know, finger in their face, telling them how bad they are. We're to be salt and light. And sometimes we don't even see it here Fortunately, I have a, a, a wonderful ending, but yet I still tell my kids all the time, don't think one misstep can change everything. That's how bad you need to cling to them. But you never shut a door because you never know when all of a sudden the Lord will get their heart and they will listen I'll never forget when Jason, when the Lord changed Jason, he said, I started remembering what you used to tell me. Well, believe me, I never thought he listened to a word I said, but they are. And they're watching your unconditional love because aren't you glad Jesus didn't give up on you? But I don't, I mean, we can, I kept surrendering and I kept going by his bed and just surrendering him because only the Lord could change his heart. But I would get up every time from being by his bedside and say, but I still need to be salt and light. I still have to make Jesus taste good. I still need to live this out because he's watching me. And I found out he was listening. So just take heart. I know I went off the beaten path, but I, I think here you do, I think a lot of us have that. And as moms, we, grandmas, we love our kids so much. And maybe you can start, I know I changed my whole prayer life for them, and I know this is hard to say, but I pray this every day for them. Do what you have to do to them to keep them close to you. That should be our ultimate desire for our children, even though we want this and this and this. And we, we want them comfortable and happy and all this kind of thing. But, Lord, my, my main thing is they've got to stay close to you or they're going down. I don't care what their title is. So, now, 
But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to Samuel, you are old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. They're not listening to you. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. I've got that underlined because if this isn't so typical, instead of looking up, (laughs) they're looking around. And they don't even care that every other nation is pagan and they shouldn't be using that as an example. But we're so quick to look around and want what everybody else has, what everybody else has. But when they said, give us a king, verse 6, chapter 8, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not that they've rejected you, but they've rejected me as their king. He's rejected me as their king. And that's why this morning I picked songs that had king in there, because he is their king, and he is all, he's the only king we need. But he says, now listen to them. Listen to them. See, this is where permissive will, permissive will here. This is not God's perfect will. His perfect will is that they keep looking up instead of looking around. That they would trust in his direction like he promised he would. But it's just so easy to let this world suck us into its mold and we're listening to everybody else but him. So... Okay, Samuel, listen to them, let them have their way, but warn them, warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them, let them know what he's going to do. So Samuel, verse 10, Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who said, who were asking for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you, this is what he will do. Now watch all of the selfishness of the king at their expense. Look at this. He will take your sons and make them serve his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground, reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be pupils perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your manservants and maidservants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and and you yourselves become his slaves. And when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. And he and the Lord will not answer in in that day. And they heard that and they still said, nope, we want a king. So the Lord says, verse 22, the Lord answered, listen to them, give them a king. So we know in chapter 9, Samuel anoints Saul as king, and, you know, he picks. I mean, yes, he is a Benjamite and and all that, but, you know, Saul, we know that he looked kingly. He was tall, a head taller than most, and I think he he just looked like a good ruler. This looks like someone who will take charge. Boy, were they wrong. 
And so Saul is going to be made king, chapter 10. Now, I don't think, believe it or not, <laughs> this is terrible for me to say, because maybe I'm making a judgment call, but it just from what, from what I'm reading here is that Saul might have looked like a king, but he didn't have much between the ears. I mean, I don't think that he was the sharpest tack in the box. Because you, if you read this, you will see that when Samuel was going to put Saul in front of everybody and, you know, make him, you know, have the, all the pomp and circumstance, here's your king. They can't find him. Where is Saul? Oh, he's hiding in the baggage. Now, what does that tell you about a leader? Is that the kind of leader you want? Who he's going to go into the baggage department because he's scared spitless? And I'm thinking, oh, last week was the celebration or the, not celebration, wrong word, I'm sorry. It was, it was the remembrance of 9-11. And I remember watching Carl Rove in one of the episodes that they were, that they were interviewing him, and he was, he was a chief of staff at that time, and he said, I will never forget that day, and for many reasons, but when they whispered into President Bush's ear that we were under attack, he said, that man took charge. And we knew that we were going to have a leader that would get us through this. And you could tell he tears got into his eyes and he was getting choked up because he said it was such a wonderful feeling to know that we had strength leading us during our dark time. And I couldn't help but think of that when I read this. I'm thinking, now they're going to bring in their king and he's hiding. Clue number one, you're in trouble. Well, obviously, you know, like I said, I don't think he had much between the years, but the Spirit of God, see, during the Old Testament, the Spirit of God was different than what we're experiencing after Pentecost. The Spirit of God in the Old Testament was still the same Spirit of God, but he would come upon them and he would stay upon them as long as they were willing to follow God's ways. But if they didn't, then the Spirit of God left. It was like, okay, your, your choice. But if you know you need me, then I will be there. And the Spirit of God, out of God's grace, came upon Saul, and all the people noticed such a change in him. He was able to do what he couldn't do on his own. Now, if he would have just stayed like that, and he followed in God's ways and sought his face, then we would have a different story today. But Saul, he just thinks he, he lets emotions get over, and they're about ready to have a war, and Samuel didn't show up in time, and instead of waiting like he was supposed to, he quick sacrifices. It's that Samuel's job, and wasn't his. He ran ahead of God because he didn't want to wait. And fear overtook him. So let's see if I can fix this. Oh, beware if you start thinking that God's not working fast enough and you need to help him. You know Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, you know that's You know that doesn't work. And it didn't work here. 
And boy, did Samuel come down on him. But before that, in chapter 12, Samuel knows he's got to give a farewell speech. He's got to make his last words count. In verse 19, I have to say, because he, he has said, like in verse, verse 12 and 13, he said, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Chapter 12, verse 12. Now here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey and do not rebel against his commands, if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God. I love this. Good! Exclamation point. Good! But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you and against your fathers. Boy, was that a good speech. So the people say to Samuel, pray to the Lord your God in verse 19. Pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die for we have added to all of our sins. We have then the sins, the evil of us. We have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. All of a sudden, they realize we're wrong. We're wrong. And Samuel comes back, and how beautiful. He says, don't be afraid. Yeah, you have done all this evil. There's no getting around it. Yet do not turn away from the Lord. Have you ever heard someone say, oh, but if you only knew how bad I was, he would never take me like this. What a comfort to be able to hear Samuel say, Yep, you are, you've done evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can't do any good for you, nor can they rescue you because they are useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. You pathetic people, believe it or not, you got a God who still loves you. Isn't that, isn't that so wonderful? And that principle is still the same today. He admits, look at the, he, Samuel admits, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. I'm sure Samuel said, believe me, I'd given up on you a long time ago. But far be it for me to, to go against the Lord and not pray for you because I do know it's kind of like a Jonah. You know how mad Jonah got, you know, when, when the people did repent and there he goes sulking and, be, you know, being self-pity and all that. Samuel at least knows, I know they're sinners and they don't deserve this, but far be it from me to not pray for God's grace. And I will teach you the way. That is good and right, but be sure to fear the Lord. Serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will be swept away. Black and white. There you go. I don't think anybody cannot understand. So then, then like I said, uh, Saul does fall away and thinks that he can do it. And um, he sacrifices ahead of Samuel's coming. Verse 13, Samuel said of chapter 13, you acted foolishly. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own 
heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Oh, man, they, 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 you know, they're back again with their enemies and, and they're suffering the consequences. We see, we see just a little start, a little glimmer of Saul's son, Jonathan, and how Jonathan's heart was so different than his father's and how he and, he and David became such great friends and how the Lord used Jonathan in David's life. Now, in chapter 15, we see that Saul... Another real blinger, um, the, the Amalekites, the Lord helped them defeat the Amalekites. In chapter 15, you know, the Lord has these enemies on, on their, nipping their heels all the time, and that is to keep them, to keep them tight and close. I think that's very relevant. I think sometimes we think, man, I just wish I hadn't. It seems like I could just get over one thing. I think the Lord's nipping at our heels all the time to make sure that we know how much we need to trust him. Well, they defeat the Amalekites, but there's strict instructions. You are not, you are not to keep anything for yourself. You are not. It's kind of like a bad apple. You got to get, I know it sounds cruel, but you got to get rid of everything. And Saul, he keeps the king, Agag, and I'll tell you, that comes back to bite Israel. And also, they keep all the, the best of the animals. Now, get this. Verse 13, listen to Saul. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Right in front of Samuel's face. What a liar. Samuel, very clever. Didn't you just love the way Samuel, Samuel handled it? Huh, then what do I hear? Let's see. What's this in my ears? Bleeding of sheep and, and the cows. Um, there's, there shouldn't be any noise at all because everything is dead. Huh, what am I hearing here? Oh, listen to this excuse. Saul answered, Oh, I kept the best of sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. He's full of, the, oh, he is such a blowbag, and he is just, he is just giving one excuse after another. And look at verse 16. What does Samuel do? Stop it. You stop. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. <laughs> um, you are going down. This is it. I know that is, I, I saw that too when I was reading. I thought that is still is another clue that he never totally, you know, so very, very good point. And, and then in chapter um, 15, look at what Samuel replied. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than fat of rams. Rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance, like the evil of adultery. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Verse 26, Samuel said, I will, not back, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. The end of the chapter, and the Lord was grieved that he made Saul king over Israel. I had a lady ask me Thursday, 
Is that saying that God said, oops, I, sh I shouldn't have done that. Oh, that was a big mistake. I thought, no, no, no. God never makes a mistake, but he's just showing us here. I give you your permissive will. Nothing good happens. At verse, in chapter 16, and this is, this is, you know, where we land. This is where we land. But through all the darkness and through all the rebellion and through all of, of the sins, oh, the mercy and the grace of God, because the whole Old Testament and the whole mission of God's people was to get a Savior for brokenness, for lostness. And through all that yuck, he still kept something going. And in chapter 16, we know the story so well. Samuel kind of went into a funk. And the Lord, because he was so upset over Saul and what a mess. And this just did not turn out and oh, on and on. And the Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn over Saul since I've rejected him king over Israel? You get back to work. You fill that horn of yours with oil and you go to Bethlehem and you go to the house of Jesse and there's going to be a man there. But let me just warn you because it didn't work the first time. So verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. So here comes Jesse's sons. Oh, they all look kingly. Oh, oh, man, none, none were the ones. So Samuel says, verse 11, so are these all your sons? Well, they're still the youngest, but, he's a, but he is tending the sheep. In other words, he, he's, not, he's not the one you want. I mean, shepherding was the lowliest of jobs. And look at Samuel. Send for him, and we're not going to sit down until he arrives. And so they sent for him, and the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. Now in verse 14, Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. The Spirit of the Lord had departed. Why? His own fault. And the Spirit said, Okay, you don't need me. And off he went. Well, and then it says, And an evil spirit of the Lord tormented him. Now that's always questionable. And I went to another version, and it used the word adultery a distressing spirit from the Lord. But, but let me just tell you, why would something distressing, or we know the Lord would never send us evil. I mean, he does things to wake us up, but he would never use evil. So evil is really not, not we gotta, we got to look past that. What does he mean? If you don't have the spirit, and this is relatable today, if you are not being run by the Holy Spirit, even though we can't lose the spirit anymore, he will never, but we can just kind of put him over to the side. I think I can do this. So basically the same. We disconnect. And whenever we disconnect from the Holy Spirit, the littlest spirit takes over. And believe me, that is a distressing spirit. And it's from the Lord because the Lord wants you to see that without him, you can't do it. And when you're in charge, look at the mess you're going to make of yourself. So, yeah, thank you, Lord, for, for making me see that if I'm not walking in your Holy Spirit, I'm walking in my spirit. And that is wicked in your sight. 
But again, in closing, look how God got David into the palace. And now this is, this is where, you know, this is where we center in now for the next three weeks. We're going to take a look at this man. It starts already as a little kid in the fields. And where did he go after he was anointed king? He went back into the fields. There's no pride. There was no haughtiness. He went back. That's my job. But whenever the spirit of self takes over, I mean, it's going to, it's going to drive you crazy after a while. And sure enough, Saul proves. People so desperately, if they think they can run their own life, I mean, they just make a mess of it. And he just, he was troubled. He was guilty. He knew. And when guilt, and we were talking about it before, guilt is such a gift of God, believe it or not. Because when you feel guilty about something, and it's not supposed to feel good, because what is guilt supposed to make you do? Repent. Change your ways. So it is a gift. But if you don't get rid of it, it will torment you. It will affect every area of you. And because he was not willing to get rid of it, it tormented him. And the only thing that would help was music. You don't think the the Bible doesn't show us that music is a tool that he uses. It said that that they, you know, Saul sent messengers messengers to Jesse because he had heard that that David played the harp and sent for your son who was with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey and and brought David to the palace. David came to Saul, entered his service. Verse 21, Saul liked him very much. David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse saying, allow David to remain in my service for I am pleased with him. Isn't this God's hand? Did you ever think, because it said that whenever David played, it calmed Saul down. But because, had, because David had a heart after God's, what kind of music do you think he played? I bet he played, when peace like a river attendeth my way. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, as child forever I am. I mean, we can go on and on. Can't you see, if I can be in such a state because of all, all my circumstances around me, so often I'll either go to the piano or I'll just stop in my tracks and the Lord will feed me with these songs that I learned and they're truthful. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not, and that reminder, I dare not trust Another frame, but a holy lean on Jesus' name. It works. He works. Heavenly Father, thank you for this. This We did 16 chapters. Oh, man, were you working. Your word is so relevant yet today. Thank you for simple black and white principles that you do not change. Sin reaps consequences, but obedience will, will lead to your blessing, and we don't want to miss that. Father, help us to really desire to want to change, to let your Holy Spirit stay in the position of control of our lives. And we, when we see ourselves go off, that we, we, we just say, Lord, do what you have to do because we want to walk blamelessly with you. And we pray this all in her Savior's name. Amen. Have a good week, everybody. Next week is in near